Thank you. While you turn to the Gospel of Mark tonight, get chapter 5 opened up in front of you, if you would. I'd like to uh, talk to you. I, I was told by um, uh, a pastor friend uh, a few years ago, he said, you ramp up longer than anybody I've ever seen or heard in my life. And I said, do what? He said, you chat with people when you first get up in the pulpit. I said, yeah, I do. I just feel a, I feel a necessity to just howdy with people, as we would say in Texas, just to kind of howdy with them. I want to express my appreciation for people coming, but I know that you didn't come for me to ramp up and to take all the time to, uh, to just say all those things, but there's just so many things I feel like I need to say. And my heart is overflowing by the time it's finally my time to get up. Uh, I, uh, I just I want to talk about the musicians and I want to talk about the crowd and I want to talk about uh, the weather and I, I want to talk about any number of things when I first get up. And, and you didn't come for that, but let me say it anyway. Uh, I, uh, I've noticed a few of you tonight as I came in tonight, as I started talking with a few of you, uh, the uh, the faces are a little extra uh, red tonight. Looks like uh, some people got outside and enjoyed some sunshine a little bit, saw it up in the choir, and then others that I spoke with out here. It was a gorgeous day. Beautiful. I really ventured out. I mean, I really ventured out. I drove all the way to Lapeer today, and uh, I, I mean, I really went the distance, and uh, I just, I had some errands to run over there, and so I just, uh, I didn't even get lost, and it was great, and uh, anyway, it was, uh, I, I enjoyed the beauty of the day, and I hope you did as well. I got some work done. People often wonder, boy, what do you do all day waiting for the service to begin? If you only knew, I have work to do just like you have to do, and I have things that have to be taken care of. Nevertheless, it was a gorgeous day. Is it always this nice here in Michigan? Always this pleasant? I'm preaching on lying tonight, so I just wanted to ask you if, if it's always this good and this beautiful. It, it's just been gorgeous. And I do appreciate the musicians, these folks over here. I have I, often encouraged a pastor to uh, do what he can to get an orchestra started because it adds and contributes so much to a church service. And then I love it that you've got uh, more than one instrumentalist over here on the on keyboards of one sort or another. And I I appreciate that. And the choir, such a blessing. And then Brother Doyle just communicates so effectively in his music and the song that he just sang, and I greatly appreciate it. Nothing's been said this week, but there's, I don't remember, he's got a table set out there with some good books and a little bit of music out there on the table. And I spoke with him briefly about it last night, and I think, I think, don't you sing in one of the recordings? Or both of them? Just one of them. That's the more expensive recording, I'm sure. <laughs> He'll even autograph it for you. You do know how to write. Yes, okay. I'm sorry. It's ridiculous. Uh, My point is, uh, you might want to hear Pastor Aaron sing on there, and as you often get to hear him sing here. And then then just some wonderful variety of books. And then I had somebody ask me last night, don't you have any books and things? I said, yeah, I do. I just didn't set it up. But today, I set up a table out there. There's a book out there I wrote for teenagers. Uh, and uh, parents of teenagers, people who work with teenagers, people who once was a teenager, people who wish they were a teenager, all that kind of stuff. You say, I can't read. I don't care. Just buy the book. And, I just, uh, and, and I'll be out there near it, but if I can help you. There's some other music out there on my table as well, but go by and see the Robertson's table. It's uh, got a lot of great stuff out there as well. 
Have I given you enough time to get to Mark 5? Here I chatted for a good five minutes and I took some of my preaching time. I need to get right into some things. I mentioned on Sunday how much I love the gospel of Mark and it's, it's genuinely the truth. It really is. I love it because Mark, <laughs> believe it or not, Mark is very succinct. Uh, whenever he tells the stories of Christ, what Luke takes forever to tell, well, it takes a long time to tell, uh, Mark tells it in a brief format. He's got these little brief vignettes. You say, what's that? I don't know, but it sounds so intelligent. And uh, he's got these little brief vignettes, these little brief stories of the encounters of Christ. And yet tonight, <laughs> don't get your hopes up, tonight, this particular passage is my favorite portion in the writing of the Gospel of Mark. And Mark writes longer about this particular account than Matthew and Luke write combined. You say, why? I'm not altogether sure. I'd have to just read between the lines and guess. But as I said on Sunday, Peter was instrumental in probably encouraging Mark with some of the stories. God gave us some more of the filling in of the gaps of this particular story. You may think it's two stories, but it's really one, and you're going to see it as we go through it tonight. They're always told together, these two encounters. As any preacher usually does, and most of the time will do, and as, as it's a help to us, it's important to get the context, to get the backdrop. A literature teacher would talk about the setting. As Jesus was traveling across the Sea of Galilee, people would guess a distance of about 12 miles from the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee over to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, he was weary, physically weary, and he slept. Now you pick up on that at the very end of chapter 4. At the end of chapter 4, the disciples have to awaken him. The Bible says that he was asleep on the pillow. Usually these ships had one pillow, and he was given that pillow and he was sleeping. He was physically fatigued. They awakened him and said, Master, do you not care? We're going to perish. Now when these men who are very familiar with the Sea of Galilee were frightened for their life, it must have been quite the storm. And Jesus calmed the storm. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? I'm telling you, knowing how it turned out, wouldn't you have loved to have been on that boat watching him do what he did? Now, if we didn't know what he was going to do, we would have been screaming like the rest of those guys, like a bunch of scared teenage girls, scared for our life. We'd be saying, ah, we're all going to die. But knowing what was going to happen, wouldn't it have been wonderful to watch Jesus say, shh, that's enough. Calm down. You can see some big eight-foot wave about to uh, bang up against that boat, you know, and Jesus said, whoop, 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 stop right there. And that old wave just goes, puts the brakes on, and just goes flat. You say, is that really that? It's hidden in the Greek. I know it's there. And then all of a sudden, it was like a, what we say, in te- it was like a slick. I mean, everything was just calm. And the disciples said, What manner of man is this? Even the wind and and the waves obey him. And Jesus said, why were you so fearful? Then they came over to the eastern side, 
Jesus had shown that he has power over nature. Now he's going to show some other power. Don't ever lose track of this one. When he comes onto that eastern shore, a maniac out of the cemetery comes screaming. He's undressed. He's naked. He's controlled. As far as we can see in the scriptures, this is one of those extremely rare times that he was controlled by what he called a legion of demons. Most of the other people were controlled by one. He was dominated and controlled by I don't know how many demons. They were all controlling him and controlling his, his mouth. And They came up to Jesus and they said in those first few verses of chapter 5, What are you going to do to us, thou Jesus, Son of God? You see, those demons knew who he was. They knew. And in, in, in Matthew's account of this story, they said, Please don't judge us, listen to this, before the time... They knew that they know there's going to be a time in which final judgment's going to come. They said, Don't do it now. It's not now, is it? And then they pled with him, Don't just throw us out into the abyss. Put us into the put us into the swine. Put us into those pigs and hogs over there. And the Bible says Jesus gave them permission. We see the enslaving power of sin on this man's life. I don't know if you and I have ever seen anybody controlled by a demon or more than one demon. I don't know. Maybe we have. But I've seen many times, even in my own life, and maybe tonight you see it in your life, an enslaving power of sin. But when Jesus comes on the scene, you see the saving power of the Savior. And just a spoken word, he commands those demons to go out of him. And the man... Is changed. You see, when Jesus comes into a person's life, they're changed. May I say to you that if you claim to know Jesus as your Savior and there's never been any real change in your life, I would encourage you to examine your life and you examine your heart, examine whether or not you're in Christ tonight. Because when Paul talked about what happened to him when he was in Christ, he said, I have, I have, a, new, I have a new power. I have a, I have a new pursuit to please him. Things have changed. And that's what happened to this maniac here. He was all of a sudden wanting to get dressed, and he did. And then he sat down and went to a, he went to a, a faith Bible institute. That's what it called, uh, the FBI institute. He, he said, Jesus, would you teach me things? And Jesus began to teach him. You talk about a seminary class. He began to get a crash course on what it means to be a follower of the Lord. And then all of a sudden you see a response that's most unusual. People in that area came up and they said, um, the swine just jumped over into the water that the demons went into. And the 2,000 swine uh, just went over there into the Sea of Galilee. In fact, they could see the, the bodies of those swine just uh, floating around the water. And they said, we want you to leave, Jesus. I find that so unusual. To me, I would have thought, why don't you stay with us? Man, we want you. We've been needing someone like you, but Jesus was told to depart. I find it unusual that somebody can sit in the church service sometimes and say, I don't want Jesus. I don't want him. I, okay, years I spent in vanity and pride. Sing that song at Calvary. That's fine. I don't want him. That doesn't make sense to me. And I hope there's no one here tonight that would say, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. But that's what these people did. 
And so Jesus gets back into the boat and he travels that distance back across the Sea of Galilee over near Capernaum on the western, northwestern side. And folks, I have no other way to say this except to say that over there, Jesus was a star. The crowd began to throng. They said, here he comes. And the voices began to to ring out all over the area. Here he comes. Here he comes. He's coming. By the time Jesus gets to the shore, they're all gathered around. Let's read it. Look at verse 21 with me, would you? Notice what happens. It says, and when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly. That means he was urgent. Saying, my little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed. And she shall live. And Jesus went with him. And much people followed him and thronged him. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered, but rather grew worse. When she had heard of of Jesus came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press, and he said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and and sayest thou who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain or certain ones which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado, and weep? The damsel's not dead, but sleepeth. (laughs) And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha, 
kumai, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years, and they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it, and commanded that something should be given her to eat. Friends, if you only knew how much I was biting my tongue, it seems like every verse in this whole story screams at me saying, preach me, tell them about me. And then I read the next verse and it's like it says, no, no, not that verse, tell them about me. You say, you have a strange brain, preacher. I, I probably do. This passage explodes with truth to me. It's a tremendous passage that has gripped my heart countless times. And when I'm finished here in a little bit, I will feel like I have left so much that was not told, so much on the table that was not scooped up and presented for us to, to devour and to enjoy. This really happened. And I want you to do your best to stay with me tonight. I don't have to tell you the story again. We just read it, but I do want you, are you with me on this Tuesday night, to use your, what I've said before, sanctified imagination. Jesus comes over that side of the, of the Sea of Galilee, and the Bible says that he was nigh unto the sea, meaning that when he got out of the boat, he couldn't take a step. He was close to the sea. The crowds were all around him. I can see his sandals and maybe the bottom of his robe getting wet by some water lapping up there next to him. He couldn't get away from the shore. And, and as he stood there, all of a sudden, somebody has elbowed their way through the crowd. And he collapses when he sees Jesus. Why? Because he's got such a desired need on his heart. He was, a, he was somebody that didn't normally bow before Jesus. He was somebody that didn't normally express such devotion and worship to Jesus. No, in fact, many times he hung out with people who were critics of Jesus. In the past, no doubt, he hung out with other rulers of the synagogue who whispered and murmured and said, who is this guy that seemingly got such a mob of people following him? But you see, something was different. This ruler of the synagogue, we're given his name because everybody knew him. Jairus. He worked there in the synagogue of Capernaum. He falls down before the Lord. He doesn't care what anybody's thinking about him. He doesn't care how his nice clothes may get messed up. You say, what do you mean? He was a wealthy man. I know he was because he was a ruler of the synagogue. He was well-educated. He was well-read. He could read. Not everybody could read. He could and when Jesus finally gets to his house, don't miss this, there were several rooms in the house. It says that he went in, into the room where the daughter was. Most people didn't have several rooms in their house. But he didn't care about any of that. He needed Jesus. He was desperate. When he collapsed before him, he looked up and he said, Jesus, my daughter is dying. Now, wait a minute. Jesus lived in Capernaum, probably most of the time in Peter's home, but maybe elsewhere as also. He very possibly knew Jairus' daughter. He no doubt knew Jairus. He went to that synagogue a lot. He may have even given the little daughter of Jairus 
a nickname which was found in that name, Talitha, meaning damsel or little dove, little, little girl. Could have been a nickname that Jesus himself gave her. I don't know. My daughter's dying. Are you hearing me tonight? Jesus hasn't even been gone for 24 hours. This sickness is a recent problem. It just came upon her. And did you miss the point? The Bible says, and Jesus went with him. What does that show you? It shows you incredible compassion. Jesus did not say, uh, Jairus, um, me and the boys are pretty weary. We're going to go get a bite to eat. We'll be over, over there in a little bit. Uh, you know, we'll get there before dark. You know, we'll, we'll come on over there after a little while. You know, we may be there by tonight, maybe tomorrow. Just don't, don't rush me. I'll get there. I know who you are, Jairus. No, not a word of that. He went with him. He saw the urgency. He knew the urgency, and he starts going with Jairus. And then as in every account in the Gospels, as he's traveling to go to his home, there's another part of the same story. It's all linked together. There's an unnamed woman. Why is she unnamed? Well, nobody knew her because she had a disease of 12 years. The Bible tells us she had some kind of a blood disease and some internal bleeding disease. And the Bible tells us that she had spent everything she had and she was made nothing better by it. In fact, she had been made worse by all the physicians. Interesting. In that generation, physicians are nothing like, <laughs> like what we have tonight what we have today. They didn't have medical resources like we have today. In fact, most of the time, there was a lot of witchcraft involved, and there were a lot of strange things. I don't even have time to tell you some of the cultural things like carrying an ostrich egg in a, in a napkin in your pocket, thinking that that's going to help you, and all kinds of silly things. And it, 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 one other thing that's interesting to me, and it has nothing, no bearing on the message, I just think it's curious. Uh, we read here that she was made nothing better, but was rather made worse when you go over and read Luke's account, Luke leaves out that part that the doctors made her worse. Do you know what Luke was? Uh, it's kind of interesting to me that Luke just kind of said, well, we're not going to mention that. Uh, and so the woman was, uh, she was not made better. And I'll tell you what she had. She had something that had made her sick for years. And she had heard about Jesus. And she said, if I can get in this crowd, if I can just touch his clothes... If I can just touch his clothes. Now listen, I'm not a Greek scholar, but if you study the language, you'll find that she's repeating that statement. If I can just touch his clothes. If I can just get, if I can just get in that, if I can just touch his clothes, I can be healed. If I can just, who's she talking to? She's talking to herself. She's no doubt probably trying to convince herself. If I know I've heard about this man. If I can just touch his clothes, I can be made whole. And she maneuvers herself. Listen, did you know that in that culture, she even had to walk around with some kind of a cloth and she'd have to hold it up in front of her mouth because it was believed, sadly enough, that if her breath fell upon anybody, they may catch what she had. She was not allowed into the synagogue that Jairus worked in. She was, she was desperately in need of help. She was depleted of her funds. She was diseased. Had she been married, she's probably divorced. Because what man wants to be around a woman that every time you touch her, you've been made unclean? She's lonely. And she says, if I can just touch that man's clothes. And when she does, immediately she knows inside she's been made whole. Twelve years she's been looking for help. And immediately she knows... I'm healed. And Jesus knows. 
power has gone out of me. And he turns and he says, who touched my clothes? Who in this crowd tonight thinks that Jesus didn't know who touched his clothes? Well, you know that he knew. Of course he knew. But can I tell you this? That same statement that she said, if I can just touch his clothes, if I can just touch his clothes, it was a repeated statement. He repeated his statement. Who touched my clothes? Who touched my clothes? Who t-? In other words, he was saying, I'm not leaving till she reveals herself. And all of a sudden, the Bible says she came fearing and trembling. Time out. What's the difference between those two words? Fearing and trembling. Well, there is a difference. The word fearing is a reference to an internal fear. She knew who he was. This is the son of God. Is he mad? Is he angry with me because I touched his clothes? He could, he could, he could condemn me right now. In her heart, she knew who he was. She believed with all of her soul who he was. And there was an internal reverence of fear. And then the word trembling, that's the external fear. <laughs> she was weak and she was scared. And what does Jesus say? Oh, listen, friend, this is great. He looks at her and he says, daughter, daughter. You know what he was saying? I just adopted you. Adoption is a great teaching in the scriptures. You can read it all over Ephesians 1 in particular. It's a great truth about a person when they get saved. They're adopted in the family of God. Hear me tonight. He says, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Now, look, friends, I don't know how long this encounter took. A lot longer than what we're spending on it. There was probably people cheering. Hey, because they knew the woman had been diseased before. Maybe somebody helped her get off, uh, off, the, off the ground and helped her get back up. And maybe, maybe some ladies embraced her because for the first time she could feel that human touch of the love of somebody else. And Jesus smiled at her and said, yes, you're, you're a part of the family of God now. This is, and, and the whole time this is going on, have you forgotten who else is there? There's a father there who desperately wants Jesus to get to his home. I can see him going, oh boy, yeah, 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 yeah. This is, uh, that's nice. He's got his hand on Jesus' back saying that. That's nice, that's nice. Got another hand on his elbow saying that. That's good, Jesus. Can we go? Can we go now, Lord? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You want to give her some more instruction? Yeah. Okay, okay, can we get going? And all of a sudden, he, he turns and he starts making his way to Jairus' home. And as they're trying to get, Jairus is saying, give us room, give us room. Get, all of a sudden, somebody from his house shows up, maybe a servant, maybe a relative. Jairus, don't bother Jesus, the master teacher. I'm sorry, but your daughter just died. And while the words are hanging in the air, Jesus turns to him and says, Don't be afraid. Keep believing. He says, Only believe. And the rest of the story tells you what happens when he gets to the house, raises that daughter up, and she immediately starts running around. She's 12 years old. And when we read here that Jesus says he strictly warned them or told them not to tell anybody, I I believe that may throw you a curve sometimes wondering, what is he saying that for? I believe he was saying, let's just let's just enjoy this in the house for a while. I mean, this is great. I enjoy watching your daughter. Hey, get her some food. She's hungry. Hey, let's let's just enjoy this. Let's don't go outside and get the mob involved. Let's enjoy this moment together. They eventually found out outside the door. What a story. 
You got two people on two different sides of the social spectrum, and they were both desperate people. I wonder tonight, I wonder how vibrant our prayer life really is. Is it going to take some desperate situation to come along in my life or in your life before we ever really get serious about saying, Oh God, oh God, I need you. Lord, come to my home. Lord, come to my family. Lord, come to my life. Lord, help me in my ministry. Lord, help me with my witness. Lord, come into my marriage. Lord, help me with my children. Oh God, I need you. Is it going to take something desperate before we really get to the point like these two people, we are desperately seeking his no, I'm not saying that there needs to be a, a, a spirit that revolves around falling down uh, in a spirit like that, that we see in these two people. But I do see in these two people a sense of huge desperation. And they saw Jesus come to their life and into their lives. How vibrant is your prayer life? I mentioned it briefly in Sunday school, Sunday morning. I believe with all my heart that Satan would look at most churches and would look at most Christians and say, just keep depending upon your programs. Just keep depending upon your curriculum. Keep depending upon your money. Keep depending on your personality. Keep depending upon your education. Keep depending upon your heritage, your history. Yeah, you keep depending upon that. But please don't get serious about seeking God. Because Satan can involve himself in all those other areas and, and keep them to a limited uh, ability to help us. But when we get serious about seeking God's power and God's help, there's, there is nothing he can do. There is a crying need for most of us to wake up and realize our prayer lives are anemic and shallow and mechanical and unspecific. And somewhere along the way, most of us in our Christian journey, somewhere along in our Christian journey, we've stopped being needy people until something really desperate comes along. And the results of that in our prayer life is devastating. I was in college several years ago. And like most college kids, I was in need of financial help. Most kids need it. And I needed help, and I, I had several things going on in which I really needed help financially. And so I, I, had a, I was coming up against the wall, and I said, God, i got to have help. i got to have help, help now. I got up real early on a particular morning, and I said, Lord, I need help today. I need help financially today. I got up, and, and I spent time with him early in the morning, early morning. And, and then I just began to plead. I said, oh, God, please send some financial help today. As God sovereignly guided, he led me to Psalm 50 that morning. I didn't know what was in Psalm 50. But in Psalm 50, you read where he is the owner of all the cattle on thousands of hills. Boom! All of a sudden, I thought about that song we sung as little kids. He owns the cattle on thousand hills. The wealth in every mind. He is my father, so they're... They're mine as well. And I said, Father, okay, I just need a little bit of that. I don't need a cow, but I sure could use some, I could use some finances. And, and Lord, you're telling me that you can do it. I need help. Oh, God, I can't wait. Lord, you're promising me, aren't you? You've encouraged my heart. That whole day, that whole day, I lived with expectancy. 
You know what I'm talking about? I live with the spirit of expectancy. I mean it. What I prayed for earlier that morning, I, I began to look around thinking, I wonder where it's going to come from. I wonder where the finances are going to come from. I'd have friends come uh, past me on the hallways. I'd say, they'd say, hey, Gleiser, hey, man, how you doing? And I kept thinking maybe someone's going to come up and say, hey, God laid you on my heart. Here, I got a wad of bills to give you, you know, but most of them needed help too. And so I, I didn't figure that would really happen. I went to my mailbox there on campus more than once that day, thinking someone's going to send me uh, maybe a big old check or something in the mail. And I went to check it and it didn't come. I thought, what in the world? Well, I had a job in town. I worked, it was a kind of a high level, uh, really a kind of a white collar job. I worked at a grocery store <laughs> and I, I stocked shelves at the, at the grocery store. And I thought, you know something, now I'm working to make money. And obviously I maybe this, this is where I get money. It's where I get finances. This is where I'm going to get some in, increase in funds. The boss is going to come around and say, we've been meaning to give you some extra help financially or something. This is where it's going to happen. I said, Lord, I can't wait. Can't wait. I mean, I was expectant. I got there and I was working. I was doing some work, uh, doing some things on my aisle, putting things on the shelf. And I saw the manager walking down my aisle and I thought, oh, oh boy. Oh boy, here it comes. This is it. And all of a sudden I heard him stop right behind me. I said, oh yes. He said, Morris. I jumped up. I said, yes, sir. He said, let's... (laughs) Let's move the sugar uh, over here down the way a little bit, and we'll put the flour and the cornmeal right here where you're working. I said, yes, sir, I'll be glad. I'll do that. I said, anything else? He said, no, that should take care of it. I'm thinking, Lord, please tell him. Tell him why he really came was to give me all that money that's in his pocket. Now, Lord, remind him. He turned and walked around the corner, and I said, stop him. It didn't happen. I worked as late as I could till I had to get back to campus. And I, I never, when I clocked out, I never, I never said goodbye to the manager or the assistant manager. But this night, I wanted to make sure they knew I was leaving because they, I figured, you know, they had that uh, signing bonus over there sitting right there. They were going to give me a big check for or something. And I, I figured they were going to just give it to me. And, I, and I, so I said to them, I said, I'll see you guys. I'm heading on out. I'm going on to school right now. I'm leaving out the door right now. And they said, all right. They thought, how strange. So I walked through the door of the grocery store and walked to my car. And I said, Lord, remind them. I mean, I'm telling you, folks, I was expecting. It didn't happen. You've been there. Discouragingly, I drove back to campus. and I said, oh, God, I really thought you'd come through today. Lord, I know you're in charge and I trust you. I really, and all of a sudden I said, wait a minute. I asked for help before this day was out. I looked at the clock. I said, Lord, in 45 minutes, I got to have my head on the pillow. We got 45 minutes. I said, Lord, well, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm, I'm just, I can't wait. I don't know how many times I've told this story. I got to the campus and parked and got to my room, I walked up to the third floor of our dormitory as I turned the corner of the staircase. My roommate was pacing down the hallway. He saw me. He comes running up. He said, where have you been? I don't know how I always got stuck with an odd roommate, but I did. And I said, uh, uh, I, I said uh, he probably thought the same about me. I said, uh, I said uh, what, what do you mean? I said, I was working. You know that. And he said, well, come here. We walked down the hall and we walked over to my, our dorm room and the door was closed. He said, look. And up there on the door 
was a business size envelope with my name written on it. It was scribbled on there by pencil. It looked like whoever wrote my name used their opposite hand, so I couldn't discern any kind of a handwriting. And my roommate said, that's, that's been on the door all night tonight. And he says, it's killing me to know what's in it. I mean, he was that close to snapping. And I said, that's really getting next to you, isn't it? He said, it is. I said, I'll wait till the morning to see what it is, you know. What he didn't know was I was dying to know what was in it. I took it off the door and we walked in and I opened it up. There was no note. There was no letter. And I can't tell you who it was from to this day. There was a handful of bills in there, just exactly what I needed for that particular moment. I could turn it into a testimony meeting tonight and you could tell your story and many other stories that we could both tell. But there are times in which it's like the Lord says to us, just keep believing. This is not some clown on television telling you to send your money in and and God's going to answer your prayer in some strange way and you'll be driving uh, some uh, uh, multi-thousand dollar car in the days to go. No, no, no. I'm, I'm just the delivery boy of what I see in this passage. If I can lay some principles on your heart from this story, I want you to see them tonight. I want you just to, first of all, see the wideness of God's mercy. I, don't, I told you I'm not going to be able to get it all out tonight because of time, but I want you to see this. The wideness of God's mercy. You say, what do you mean? On one hand, you've got a well-educated, well-to-do, well-known, wealthy man that everybody knew, Jairus. And on the other side of the social spectrum, you've got a, a diseased woman everybody avoided, nobody wanted to be around, and, and she, she's not even named. She's on, they're on both sides of the, of the world's spectrum. But they were both desperate. And in this story, they're always together because, for one thing, God is trying to show us the wideness of God's mercy. My question to you tonight is this. To whom did God, the Lord Jesus, to whom did Jesus show the greatest care? Think about it. To whom did Jesus show the care that was needed the most? Friends, he showed care to them both equally. It had nothing to do with their social background. It had nothing to do with their education. It had nothing to do with how many friends they had. It had nothing to do with the color of their skin. It had nothing to do with their education. It had nothing to do with how long they had known him and spoken to him. It had nothing to do with any of that. They came desperate. They came broken. And many a child of God comes to the Lord in prayer and they say, oh, I just, I just, I'm just such a loser and I know that I don't deserve help. Right. None of us do. You say, I just, you know, I'm not the pastor of the church and so I really don't think I can get help. Listen, friends, you come to the Lord as you are in desperate need. That's the magnificence of the gospel. The song is sung just as I am without one plea. for the the truth of receiving Christ as Savior. But we come to Him broken. We come to Him desperate. We come to Him empty. We come to Him needy. And He takes you just as you are. And He gives you His mercy. The wideness of God's mercy. What is mercy? 
It's God's goodness directed to those who are in misery. A.W. Tozer said about mercy, he said this, When through the blood of the everlasting covenant, we children of the shadows reach at last our home in the light, we shall have a thousand strings to our harps. But the sweetest string may well be the one tuned to sound forth most perfectly the mercy of God. So when you reflect upon the wideness of God's mercy, what does that mean for your prayer life? I'll tell you what it means. You can come to Him, ready? Believing. Believing that He hears. Believing that He cares. Believing that He can make a difference. You say, preacher, I already know all this. These two people recognized the Lord's nature. Have you reflected on that in a long time? They recognized His nature. What was His nature? He was capable of making a difference. If you'll just touch my daughter, she shall live. If I can just touch his clothes, I'll be, I'll be made well. They recognized his nature, and so they came believing. What's his nature? He was a compassionate, caring, capable Lord. I came home from a meeting one day, uh, a, a meeting back to our home. I had been preaching in Hershey, Pennsylvania. What are you thinking about right now? It's the sweetest smelling town in America. And I, some of the people there in the church were uh, workers in the factory there. And uh, I happened to mention that, that I, I like chocolate. I happened to mention it every service. And, uh, and, and the truth is, uh, some very kind people brought me some samples, you know, and I enjoyed it. And it was fun that week, and it was great. Well, as I was driving home, it dawned upon me. I had some grandchildren that would be at our house when I got there. And I had a little bit of that chocolate candy left, and I couldn't wait to see them and offer it to them. You know, uh, I just couldn't wait. I walked in the door, and I mean, after all the, after the, the wrestling around and the hugging and the laughing and the tickling and all the, everything else that goes with seeing your grandkids, I, I said, hey, I said, Papa's bringing home some chocolate candy. I said, Drew, I said, I got some Reese's peanut butter cups, and I got some Snickers. Which one do you like the best? And he looked at me, and you just got to know my little angelic grandson. I mean, he's just really almost perfect. He really is. Don't argue with me. He looked at me, and he said, Papa, they gave that to you. That doesn't belong to me. And I said, no, Drew. You're, I looked at his parents, and they said, he's working you. I promise you, he's working you. I said, Drew, do you want peanut butter cup, or do you want a Snickers? He said, I really like Reese's. I said, here, take you a peanut butter cup. I looked at his sister, Karis, and I said, Karis, which do you like? Do you like Reese's peanut butter cup or do you like Snickers? She said, Papa, I don't, I don't really like peanut butter cups. I said, do you like Snickers? Uh-huh. I said, here you go. Enjoy the Snickers. I looked at the baby. Her name's Amberly. She's about four at the time, maybe five. I looked at that little old uh, cute-as-a-button girl, and I said, Ambers, which do you like? Which do you want? Peanut butter cup or Snickers? She looked at me and you know what she said. She said, both. I mean, I mean, I'm not going to stop with one of the, I want both. Guess what she got? She could have asked for the keys to the car. I would have given it to her. They own me, I'm telling you. That girl says, you're my papa. I don't have to stop with one. I know what you are. I know what you'll do. I want both. Now, Jesus is not our papa. He's not some Santa Claus and he's not a bell that you ring and you, he comes running to wait on you. But do you understand the wideness of his mercy? 
You don't go to him and say, well, you know, I've been going to church every night and, and can I, uh, shouldn't I get this answer to prayer with reference to my family? Shouldn't I get help in this area? My, no, friends, no. You don't go in your merit. You go in Jesus' name. The fact is these two people recognize his nature. Here's a man who's probably been a critic of Jesus and he says, would you just come to my home? I need you. Here's a woman who's never even met him. She's heard about him. She's tried everything else. Folks, I'm telling you, she's probably tried witchcraft and everything else. She's done a number of things that would disappoint Jesus, but she just comes desperate and she says, would you help me? When you recognize his nature, you can request with nerve. What What do I mean by that? You can go to him boldly. You can go to him with your desperate prayers. There is no burden he cannot lift. There is no issue he cannot answer. There is no sickness he cannot heal. There is no heartache he cannot calm. There is no door he can't open. There is no soul he cannot save. There is no sin he can't forgive. There is no marriage he can't restore. Request with nerve. He's not only able, he's good. And as you see the, you see the wideness of his mercy, I tell you this in closing, you see the wonder of his might. Do you read the stories? Do you hear the stories of what Jesus did when he was here? And do you kind of go, yeah, oh boy, that's, that's Jesus. He can do anything. When was the last time something happened in your life that took your proverbial breath away and you backed off and you said, there's no answer to that. That's the work of God. Most of us know very little of seeing God do the miraculous in such a way that when we look at what he's done as a result of us seeking his face, that we recognize that was God who delivered Daniel in the den of lions. That was the Lord who gave Hannah a baby. That was, that was God who, who brought rain as a result of Elijah's prayer. That was, that was God who protected David while in a cave. That was God. When was the last time you, friend, When was the last time you called on God and you said, God, I'm desperate. I need you to work. Or have you kind of gotten used to living at a level in your Christianity that I'm fine. I'm okay. I don't need anything. You know, I prayed for something a few years back and God didn't come through. And so I've just kind of stopped asking for much. I don't really pray much, or I tell him I love him, and I tell him, I, tell, I praise him, and, and so forth. But when it comes to the matter of saying, would you come to my home? Would you bring healing? Would you do some of these things? I just don't do this because, you see, Mr. Preacher, I got disappointed, and so I've stopped praying. Oh, you see, I, 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 I feel like uh, I, I, you know, I, I got discouraged, and fear has won out over belief, and so I've stopped praying. My heart maybe has gotten a little bit cold and Christianity has just kind of gotten monotonous and routine. And so I don't really pray with much specificity. In fact, the truth is, I ask you tonight, when was the last time you lived a day of your life with a sense of expectancy? 
because of something you prayed for, about someone's life, about something going on in your family, about something going on in your job, about something going on in your health, about something going on in your finances, about something going on. Friends, do not throw me in that lot of crowd of people on television. I'm just delivering to you what these two people did. They said, would you please come? And he came. And when you see the wonder of His might, the wonder of His mighty power, you don't just come believing. Look at what Jesus told Jairus. He told him to keep believing. He said, be not afraid. Keep believing. Are you praying for something that appears impossible? Are you praying for some relationship that's broken? You don't think it's ever going to be restored. Are you praying for some son or daughter that's estranged from you and away from God and you don't think they're not going to come back? Are you praying for a relative, maybe even a spouse that's unsaved and you're thinking, I don't think they'll ever come to Christ. You know what prayer is? Prayer is calling all the unlimited power of the living God to come down upon one specific person or one specific uh, situation right here on earth. We're calling on the almighty power of God to come down upon one particular person or situation. And when you focus on that, when you recognize that's what we're doing, can I tell you something? There's no room for worry. There's no room for us to be up and down in our moods. There's no room for mediocre Christianity. Because there's a sense of, I can't wait to see what God's going to do. You say, but preacher, does God always answer it the way I want him to, to answer it? You know the answer to that. Of course not. Go ask Paul when he asked to be delivered of his, of his uh, thorn in the flesh three times. Sometimes God reroutes our request to something that would be better. Finally, God said, Paul, quit asking I've got something better for you. You're going to learn more about my power and about my grace. And you you need that thorn in the flesh. But a lot of times God just makes us wait. I know something about waiting rooms. Do you? When When you're going through any kind of an illness, you find yourself in a lot of literal waiting rooms. But I know something about the waiting room waiting on God. You know that. And sometimes God is saying, I've got it. I've got it for you. It's just not time yet. Just keep waiting, keep talking, keep praying, keep believing. Like a parent being asked by a child, by a kid, Daddy, Daddy, can, Daddy, for Christmas this year, can I, can, I get, can I get a new football, Daddy? Daddy, can I get a, can I get a bicycle? Daddy, a girl says, can I get some skates, Daddy? Daddy, and as they grow up, Daddy, can I get a car? Uh, Daddy, can I, uh, can I get a computer? Daddy, can I get a phone? Daddy, can I get... And, and you, every parent goes to school to learn these statements. Oh, no. Money doesn't grow on trees, son. No, no. What, what do I look like, an ATM machine? Just <laughs> money just comes out, you know. Uh, we're not going to be able to get as much this Christmas like we've gotten before. Every parent says the same thing. And many a parent will go out the next day or the next week and go looking for that one thing their child was asking for. It's November. They'll go buy it, wrap it up, put it up in the closet. It's not Christmas yet. And for the rest of November and most of December, the kid keeps saying, Daddy, Daddy, can I get that football? Can I get that? Can I get this? Can I get that? Oh, son, I just, I don't know if we can get those things. What he doesn't know is he's already got it. 
It's just not time yet. And I've gotten to know the Lord a whole lot better and you will too in the waiting room. I suppose in anybody's history of church study, they'll run across this man that most of you know. His name is George Mueller. George Mueller started five orphanages in Bristol, England, London, the late 18, in the mid to late 1800s, and they were all run by praying for God's supply. You've probably heard the story. <coughs> to me, the most famous story, stay with me, is a story of George Mueller one day when he came downstairs, came to the breakfast table, and the children were gathered around the table of one of the orphanages. The plates, the cups, the silver were all out there, but there was no food on the table. The workers said, Mr. Mueller, we have no food in the house. We have no money to buy anything. He looked at the children and he said, children, I know you've got to get to school. So we've got to ask God for some breakfast. He said, so let's thank him for what he's going to do. George Mueller, they said, lifted his head. And lifted one hand, and he began to pray, and he prayed simply, Father, I thank you for what you're going to do for these children and how you're going to supply us with breakfast. We look forward to watching your mighty power on this day. When he finished his prayer, a knock came to the door. You study it, it's the truth. They went over and opened the door, and there stood at the door a local baker. He said, Mr. Mueller, God woke me up in the middle of the night. I've been up since 2 a.m. baking bread and baked goods. He said, God told me I had to do it for you and the children. Do you need it? He said, we do. They brought the baked goods inside the house and began to put it on the table. And when that was all brought in, another knock came to the door. They went and opened the door, and there stood at the door. Back in those days, milkmen, milkman, a milkman would travel around in the community and would deliver milk. He said, sir, you can see out here on the road, my, my, uh, my, my cart just broke an axle. He said, I got a bunch of cans of milk out there that's going to spoil. I can't get them to their destination. He said, I got I to gotta get them off the cart so I can repair uh, the broken axle. And he, he said, would you just take the milk and get it off my hands? He said, we'd be glad to. And that's the way that ministry was run. By asking God to do what only He could do. Sometimes I'm convinced that God's people would be better off if we lived in a spirit almost always of desperation. Oh, I guess emotionally and physically we probably couldn't hardly handle it. But we sure learn a lot about prayer. We learn more about our God when we talk to Him in desperate. Would you bow your heads with me, please? I suppose when bills are paid and health is good and job is secure and children are doing well in school and your individual ministries are sufficient, 
suppose at a time like that, our prayer life just kind of simply says, oh, God, just keep blessing, please, and keep helping me, and keep meeting with us. And Maybe tonight you need to take a look at some things in your life that you don't pray about anymore, that you used to pray for, or that you failed to pray about because you just... You just didn't think that you were worthy. Of course you're not. You see the wideness of His mercy, so come to Him believing. You see the wonder of His mighty power, so keep believing. Tonight, friends, I don't know what it is that may be on your heart. I don't know if anything's on your heart. I pray that it is. I trust that it is. Somebody that you know that needs the Lord and you don't really pray for him anymore. You need, you need to see God do the miraculous. Would you stand with me with heads bowed all over the room tonight? The most important prayer anybody could ever pray is the prayer to receive Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to call upon him tonight to be your Savior and you're, a room, you're in a room where somebody could help you. I'd be glad to talk with you after the service and others could pastor and maybe a friend you could turn to and say, I really have never asked Jesus to be my Savior. Don't go away without taking care of that particular need and praying that most important prayer tonight. But child of God... When it comes to revival, if there's anything a a church family could usually need a good dose of, it's a revival of seeking God. A freshness of His power, a freshness of His presence. To see God help us to make an impact in our world, in our community, in our home, in our personal life. There's an altar that's open. In a moment I'll pray. If you'd like to get on your knees, even at your own pew, pray there. If you want to sit down or get on your knees there, as some have done. You you talk to your God. You've got a burden on your heart tonight of anything and everything. I don't have to re-preach anything. I'm not the Holy Spirit. If tonight there is a concern of some situation that you know that you need to seek the Lord about, would you go to Him tonight and say, Well, God, please come to my home. Please touch my need. You seek Him tonight. Father, encourage Your people. Revive our prayer life. And may the devil be frightened by God's people being awakened in their prayer life. We ask it in Your glorious name. As the music begins, would you find that place to seek the Lord right now all over the room? Have a 